Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about what happens behind the scene of some of the Hollywood hottest sex scenes. However, before I tell you more about the content of this episode, I would like to invite you to take our free quiz to realize what kind of a lover are you. Everyone has their own unique style of uh, sexual personality, but we all almost can benefit from some science-backed tips for improving our style. If you're interested to learn more about your sexual style, you can take our quiz. It doesn't take more than five minutes. As I mentioned today, we're going to talk about intimacy coordination. A few years ago, I learned about this role from one of my clients that she's an actress. And she told me about this cool job that there are people out there that they're coordinating these hot sex scenes. And I got the opportunity to meet few of them. And in next two episodes, we're going to talk about what what's the role of intimacy coordinator and what goes into coordinating these sexy scenes. Our guest today is Chantal Cosino. She was born in Canada and she started modeling at age of 17 and was published in a number of different wonderful, well-known magazines such as Vogue, Elle, Cosmo, Roots, and many more. She moved to LA 20 years ago and has since carved out a successful career as an actor shooting television commercial. She has become a grounded voice within the advocacy community, helping more than 1,300 survivors of sexual harassment, assault, and abuse share their Me Too experience since 2017. She talks about her journey of talking about her experiences and the backlash she experienced after talking about her experience. And she's going to tell us about how she landed her position as an intimacy coordinator. Her most recent intimacy coordinator credits includes This Is Us, The Terminal List, and Sharp Stick. Before we go to the interview today, I wanted to thank our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is a platform that connects more than 15,000 licensed counselors to clients worldwide. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sexologypodcast. That's BetterHelp and join more than 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. If you use our URL in the show notes, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com. All right, here's my conversation with Chantal Casino. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Chantal Cousineau on our show. Chantal, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
I am very excited about this conversation. I bet our listeners are excited as well because many people, I, I bet they haven't heard about intimacy coordinator. I, I heard about it from my clients a few years ago and I thought, oh, this is such an interesting job and how wonderful that film industry now is providing that. So tell us a little bit more about your job. Yes, intimacy coordination. It's, it's a department head position on film and television shows and it's about two or three years that studios have started using, using that position. And it basically what it is, is I help bring the vision of the director or the showrunners full vision, bring it, you know, to reality. So whether that is uh, communicating their vision to the actors, communicating the actors boundaries and understanding of the scene and how it will be shot back to the directors and just bridging that communication, the back and forth in a way that empowers everyone involved. And then it creates a really safe workspace. And then on the day, that was all just prep work. And then on the day of shooting, then I'm there to support the crew and the cast and the production in, you know, really having a smooth experience throughout the day. So I address new concerns that pop up, feelings that happen that were unexpected. And I help, you know, let people feel heard and hold space for their uh, experience and make sure that consent is in real time, enthusiastic and fluid. So it's not something where they signed a contract three weeks ago and they're supposed to feel the same way today. We like to pivot and communicate and change things that need changing. And, you know, first, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, this is a dream job. I want to be on all of these hot sex scenes <laughs> and coordinate that. And the more I learn about it, I realize, oh, God, this is really challenging. You need to communicate these things with people, kind of empower people to say what's working, what's not working. And that can be really challenging. Tell me, are like directors or how, how, how do you perceive intimacy coordinators? Or do they see the coordinator? on their side or it depends or tell us more about that. Oh, that's a really great question. I think that my number one job when I come on to either a show that's been going on for years or a brand new project and nobody knows each other is to navigate the relationships and who does what and how they feel. And so I'm really a sponge for all of the concerns and the questions that people have and they have a lot of them. And especially when it comes to this sensitive content, it's the directors are worried their performers aren't going to be comfortable or they're not going to go through with it. And production is, you know, concerned that this is going to cost a lot of money, you know, if people stop and can't do the job. And so everyone has different concerns. And my job is to meet them where they are, find the common ground. And, you know, oftentimes performers will say, I don't need an intimacy coordinator. I'm comfortable with everything. And I go, great. Well, this scene will look like this. And this is the, the full vision of what the director is, is hoping to achieve. And so how do you feel about A, B, and C very specifically? And they go, whoa, no. And so the idea of something sometimes in the script, it just says, and the two make love. Or, and then they fight and then they make up and then they make love. And it's just like not very specific. So people go, I had no problem with what I read in the script, but it's actually the things that maybe weren't specifically written in the script that we tend to 
run into two different, you know, visions of what that looked like. And so I think getting a really clear vision from the director, the showrunner, producers, before I meet with the actors, and then the actors, I want them to really, you know, hear what it is that the directors want. And then I want to hear what, how they experienced that information. Like, did it, did it trigger anything? Did it feel good? Do they feel excited? Is it exactly what they imagined, which often happens as well, in which case the job is to maintain that, that sense of balance, you know, as opposed to helping advocate for it. I'm, I'm more sustaining it, you know, and, and holding space for that to, you know, happen throughout the film, because like we know, things happen, you know, maybe they got along the cast members at the beginning, but they're not getting along now. And all of a sudden these scenes are a problem. So I think when people see me on set, they wonder what it means for them. So at the beginning, I love to introduce myself way before we get to set and, and make myself available for all their questions and all their concerns. That way, when I get to set, it's just like a reunion and they feel like, oh, you know, that safety net is here, you know, so they can just play. And I, you know, create that sense of, you know, creative space where they can play freely. So to answer your question, the actors, directors, and producers all have different experiences with working with me. Some people are just, you know, talking or just emails or, you know, just doing paperwork, things like that. And then some people really get to experience how I navigate conflict resolve conflict, help navigate feelings of distrust and triggers and, and then hold space for stories that aren't going to be relevant to telling the directors, but it will help the performers explain to me where they feel they're landing with the material and where we can get the best results and the best scene. You know, I, I think that's fantastic that in recent years we have this role because I feel like counting on talents to say that I'm not comfortable right. with this or predicting it, it's really tough. And I, I, I had clients throughout the year that they felt small T trauma and big T trauma because of what happened in the set. And I love that you're saying that you're cultivating this relationship with them in advance and you help them to mentally go through the steps because that is important. Sometimes we're thinking, oh, this, this sounds good. I can do that. But we're, if we're thinking about it in this touch and that touch and that movement, then that can bring up lots of good information about whether it's doable or not. I, someone shared with me that they, they were at the set and they said, okay, what should I do? And the per per person said, like the, the crew said, oh, just, just do whatever you do for making love. And the person did that. <laughs> and they said, no, definitely not that. <laughs> Oh my and goodness. Just like, so it was embarrassing for them. It was embarrassing for the talent. So I'm glad that they have you to carry that vision, have this conversation with people. That you bring up a good point. Intimacy coordinators, there's a lot of people just popping up saying that they are intimacy coordinators and they are trained and educated in a lot of other things that seem related sideways, but still like peripherally, but not, not directly. And they tend to not, if you're not like certified <laughs> as an intimacy coordinator, you could make many mistakes that are more harmful 
to mm-hmm. the performers, costly to the production, than just shooting the scene without any help or, or intimacy coordinators would be. So it's really important that for your listeners and just for the, you know, for the industry at large, that people seek out certified intimacy coordinators. And SAG-AFTRA has, uh, that's the union here in the States, they have, they have an accreditation program that they're creating right now. And so there'll be a list of people who are certified, who've had a certain amount of hours on set as an intimacy coordinator. And you can gauge that with the costs and it will be very user-friendly for for productions who are looking for someone and they don't know that they got someone good or bad. They just know that they got someone for the right price, you know, because this is so new. Nobody really knows, you know, and I don't put things on my resume until they've aired. So there's a lot of TV shows that I've done that I'm not really talking about until they air, but having worked on a Lena Dunham movie that's coming out, not coming out, but it has been wrapped and it's in post. And this is us. Those, those two experiences were amazing. I've done several TV shows since, and every experience is really different than the other. And mm-hmm. so it's, there's so many areas where people were vulnerable before and that they're not so much now. So it feels like a really good improvement. We're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. And I think someone that would have a right training, I think it's really important. I know that when we talked before, you shared with me that you you also were, uh, were you're an actress, right? Like you were in the field. So tell us, how did you get to this job? Well, I've been an actress for 22 plus years. I did TV commercials. And I did a lot of them, (laughs) like well over a hundred. And so I've been very blessed here in Los Angeles to have this great career. But at the beginning of my career, I also did film and television. And I worked on a film and had a Me Too experience and felt as though like equating the danger to the payoff. I was like, I don't think that I want to do film and television anymore if I have to worry about being harmed on set. And so I veered towards commercials and I never looked back until the Me Too movement where survivors were coming forward about Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein. I said, does anybody want to talk about the director that I was speaking about? And 38 women came forward. Wow. That was on Twitter. Mm. And the, the 38 of us, we, you know, someone decided to speak to a reporter at the LA Times. And I was the only of the 38, the only one who had worked with that director. So I, I guess that perspective was important to share because it could have been, the narrative could have been uh, framed to say that they were disgruntled, that they didn't book it, you know, but it doesn't matter if you book it or not. A predator will, will do what they do, whether or not you book the job or don't. So the LA Times article came out and it froze my career. Oh no. Um, Stopped it in its tracks. So I went from 10 commercials a year to zero. I'm so and sorry. Thank you. It was shocking. And I just thought, you know, it'll blow over. There's just no way, you know, and it didn't. And I, uh, I was asked by SAG-AFTRA to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee in Sacramento to speak on, an, on a bill, uh, SB 224, that would change the definition of employer to include people who can affect your career. 
So instead of just payroll bill in Chicago, the director, producer, casting director, everyone who is able to affect your career can be held accountable for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So that passed unanimously. And that was a wonderful experience. And when my article came out in the LA Times, within 48 hours, 400 women came forward about oh the same God. man. Wow. Mm -hmm. So it was only 38, only, only 38, <laughs> only, in the article. Only 38. And then when it came out, like there were like hundreds of people out there. Oh God. So I took their disclosures. They spoke with me. I was named in the article. So they found me on Twitter and through the union and through friends of friends. They just came forward and told me their stories and shared their experiences. And then from then, from there, more, more, you know, performers came forward and told me where they had been harmed. And I have taken the disclosure since 2017. I've taken over 1400 disclosures. Wow. And at first it was like eight a day and mm. a disclosure can take one to five hours. Right. So it was a lot of information. It taught me a lot about where performers are the most vulnerable. You know, it gave me a whole library of information and I took that to SAG-AFTRA. And we worked together with Gabrielle Carteris and David White and Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who's the in-house counsel there. And we worked diligently to create a safer space. And immediately they stopped auditions in hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. Immediately they stopped. They, they created a hotline with qualified people to answer the call to really offer help for people who are in crisis, dealing with what comes up. And so that's what I did for the two years that I didn't work. And then I certified to be an intimacy coordinator when I decided I wanted to pivot my helping people create resources for people that have been harmed to prevention. So it was just sort of born from having worked so much with the aftermath of trauma. And I wanted to get ahead of it and work with the prevention. Well, Chantal, what a story. Wow. <laughs> How courageous that you uh, spoke up about it. And I can imagine it was tough to hear stories. I, I work with lots of sexual assault survivors and sometimes hearing the stories of survivors when, when they talk about trauma can be very challenging, even one, one or two per week. I can only imagine the kind of like the magnitude of the pain that you carried for these people, again, very meaningful. And thank God it led to results. But how was that like to hear these stories? It was, at first, it just felt necessary. There were floodgates and they were open and a lot of people needed to be heard. And so it was just important to do the work. But then I found it to be really hard. And so I realized I needed to be more like create some boundaries, you know, with the hours that I would keep and how long it would take. If it took longer than that, then I would asked to speak to them on a different day to continue the conversation as opposed to cancel on the person I was speaking to afterwards. It also, I found I couldn't drink alcohol anymore because if I had even a sip of anything, I had a massive headache and I couldn't sleep. And so I realized my self-care regimen was going to need to be stellar in order to have a space to offer these survivors, you know, because if I wasn't, you know, capable, 
you know, I think that they felt comforted in knowing they were speaking to a survivor themselves, someone in the industry that understood the dynamics that wouldn't go, what were you doing there? Why, why would you do that? Why would you let it get that far? Things, awful things that people Mm -hmm. say when they are not well-versed in our industry and how things are done on the regular, when you don't get hurt, things happen in a really strange way. People just think hotel rooms, they think a motel of some sort. They don't think of the top floor of a major, beautiful apartment, you know, like you don't even see a bedroom, you know, they don't think of that. But so people can get really harmed by turning to the wrong person. So I felt personally responsible for those stories. And so I thought, how, how do I make myself, you know, a stronger vessel to hold space for that? And so I started seeing a therapist myself, which was really helpful. That therapist was very, very in tune with what I needed to do to be strong and safe as an advocate, because I'm not a doctor. And I always say that because I do so much advocating for people's mental health that people tend to go, you know, what are your credentials? And I I am not a doctor. I always start with that. And, and I have a very, like, I have a vast self-care regimen that I like to share with the survivors at the beginning and at the end of each call. And so at the beginning, I tell them what I did to get ready. And then I, at the end, tell them what I would find useful for them to do after our call, because you can be up for days after you disclose to Mm -hmm. someone. So, so to answer your question, I think self-care was a really big part of it. Professional support was also a big part of it. And, you know, good old fashioned clean diet and sleep, which was also very helpful. I realized without it, I'm a mess. (laughs) So I made sure that I focused on that part of my health so that I could help focus on their health. Well, I think even with that, I can imagine that was incredibly painful. You experiencing kind of similar kind of pain with the same person. I think it was very generous of you to volunteer to get these stories, collect these stories and advocate for people. Because I think that's what happened with many of survivors. I have many of my clients that are survivors and they just don't, they choose not to pursue any legal action talking about these things because you have to tell and retell your stories so many times. And that can be very painful. And I think it's really powerful if someone that's collecting the stories are someone that had similar experiences. So they will be more sensitive to the challenges that comes up and the modeling that you do, that this is what I'm doing and this is what I find useful versus someone kind of like saying, okay, that was it. And then kind of like ending the call without giving them information. Right. After each call, there are resources in their area that I've researched before the call because they called from all over the world. And whenever we would contact each other, I would ask them where they were where it happened, like the location of of where they were harmed and where they were now. And so that way I could give them resources to, you know, suicide hotlines, groups, community outreach, things of that nature, police in their area, police in the area where it happened in case they wanted to pursue it. Very few people do. Out of 1,400, I say 1,400 till I get to 1,500, but I'm at 1,400 now. And only six people have gone to the police. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, the, and the statistics are that 100% of, of uh, those survivors never told a soul. 
So when people say the statistics are one in three or one in six, and I'm like, you don't know until you talk to everybody. Right. <laughs> we haven't. We do not have statistics on this. You have statistics on who has come forward. But when I've found 1,400 people, you know, just as Chantal Cousineau, that, that tells you the number is astronomical, you know, and that more likely than not, a person will have been harmed in some way, shape or form, either in this industry or any other, as a child or as an adult, you know, and there's, there's really, there's a TED talk there in there somewhere about having no statistics on this issue, you know, because these statistics are, are only helpful to the extent that we understand, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yes. And so I'm at all of this 1400 number. Are, are these people from the same person or now you're a designated person for this uh, kind of calls? I'm not even a designated person. <laughs> I mean, nobody designated me, not even myself. <laughs> I go, oh gosh, no, people just found me on Twitter or through someone that came forward and spoke to me. And then they decided they wanted to speak to me and tell me what happened. And then sometimes a, a daughter will tell me something and then she's like, my dad, something happened to my dad and he wants to talk to you. And it's just, it just like webbed out, you know, where people found me, like I said, from all over the world. I did a lot of interviews when my LA Times article came out and in Canada because it happened in Canada. And so I did a lot of interviews also for the legislation and so anytime I spoke anywhere, hundreds of people would find me for weeks following. So I'll probably see an influx after this, <laughs> after this podcast as well. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of been the wave. And already, so you're collecting, these people are that like people who are in the industry and they, they, they got harm. So you share that, like, what do you do with those stories? Are you just holding space for them or they are using this as a way to take some action? Some of them want to speak to a reporter. And those are part of the resources that I offer at the end of the call. Police and then suicide hotline, reporters in their area that would be interested in in like hearing what they had to say. And you know, so I have all of these resources offered to them. I, I don't, I do a soft handoff with that. You know, that's not something that I hold on to and follow their journey through. I think that would be too harmful to me to continue on that journey with them. I do want to hear them. I do want to help them on their journey, but I think there are more capable people, experts, really. I pass them off to experts, but if all they want to do is be heard, then I feel like I can do that and not cause any harm. I think I can uh, hold space for that. And their story in turn informs me about places and ways that we are vulnerable in this world, whether they are performers or not performers, because they're not exclusively film industry. And so I just, I take that, I took that information and I continue to take that information to the unions that like, if it was harmed by a director, I call the DGA and I discuss with them ways they could improve on their, you know, constitution and how they address these issues. And, you know, I ask them questions that get them thinking about how they can do things better. Again, I don't follow that through to the end either. The only place I really followed through was with the union, with SAG-AFTRA, because I continue to work with leadership because they're just so hungry for change and they are so 
ready and willing to meet this moment in a really effective way that I've found great healing from working with them. You know, if I felt like my presence there and the information I was sharing was falling on deaf ears, I think I would have had to walk away from that as well. And also legislative reform, worked with equal rights advocates and and with senators who are looking to change the infrastructure of, of our vulnerabilities, you know, and try and create a safer space so that it just sort of trickles down. You know what I mean? Where, you know, if we create this safer than it, or the foundation safer, then we can build on something like that and, and seek different results. That's what we want, right? We just want change. And so I can't take away the pain of the performers and the people that have survivors that have come forward to me. If I can, you know, change the future, I think that will be very healing for them as well. And they were, they are a big part of, of the work that I do. What a beautiful story. And uh, Chantal, I did my dissertation on post-traumatic growth. And it's very close to what you're talking about, that many survivors, they found growth and pro-social activity, like helping other people. Right. And that's very meaningful when we are taking steps to make a change. And that's what I'm hearing that it seems like that's what you're experiencing, that when you're able to make meaningful change with organizations that you're, you are, although you endure that pain, you're, you're willing to be part of this, which I think it's a huge, in a way, Sacrifice. I feel again, many, many survivors choose to never talk about these things. These, these conversations can be triggering for many women because I believe many women of all ages, they experience all sorts of sexual assault or sexual kind of like trauma, but a big trauma or a little T trauma. So I think this is, this is really meaningful. So tell us what are some of the places that you see maybe young actress or actresses are vulnerable when they start their career, they don't know their rights? Well, they're vulnerable with regards to representation, what to expect from people who are going to be navigating their careers. So when you're starting out, you're vulnerable because you don't know what the norm is. So whatever it is your agents or managers are telling you, you might think that that's just the way it is. A lot of people who are not part of a union yet are vulnerable. But outside of that, people who are in the union do have representation that's wonderful. Then you have the audition process. And recently in July of 2020, we passed a new contract for TV and theatrical with SAG-AFTRA. And it really addressed and, and narrowed the vulnerabilities that performers have in that workspace. So you know, there are new nudity and, and simulated sex protocols that have been, what's the word I'm not thinking of, um, <laughs> that have been <laughs> applied to the workspace, which is there are no more nude auditions. There is a final callback. They can see your body with modesty garments, but there has to be a minimal amount of people in the room. And if those people are on a Zoom call, they have to be visible and have expressed like who they are, introduce themselves and continue to be visible throughout that process. Once you are down to your modesty garments, you are not allowed to simulate sex or any sex acts. And you are not to be videotaped or photographed and never with a personal recording device, like so no phones. And having that structure really changed a lot of places where people are vulnerable because I've heard 
some very famous producers say to the writers, you have to write a part for a beautiful young woman who takes her clothes off. That way for six weeks, you get to have a parade of naked girls walking through your office. Yes. So that was said to me by someone who was very ill-informed talking to me about it. Um, and I, I still hear that echoed in my voice, in my head, but I, I took that to SAG-AFTRA and these amazing negotiators, David White and Gabrielle Carteris and Duncan took that to the AMPTP and put it, those, those protections in place for performers. And also uh, on set, what a closed set looks like was, I mean, it varied as much as people do what they considered to be closed back in the day. But since July 2020, that has changed and it is very narrow and only the necessary people need to be there. People need to have robes. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to be crass, but genitals are never to touch. And mm-hmm. so that being said, there are just all kinds of, of things that you can do to uh, advocate for performers. And as an intimacy coordinator, these sag rules and protocols have made my job so much easier because, you know, actors don't have to get their lawyers to fight for these rights. They exist in the contract as a basic right. And then they can fight for above and beyond what it is that they feel is necessary for them. But it just reduces the amount of requests that you have as a performer. So it's a really, it's a good time to be a performer. (laughs) 2021. (laughs) It's it's great that you're advocating for these things. You're paying attention to what you're hearing. And I hear the passion, right? Because it can easy, it can be easy to say it is kind of industry standard. I'm sorry, this is happening, but this is a culture, but I love that you have this kind of like solution focused, action focused approach to it. So it's, I'm glad that the person talked to you about it and with no genital touching, many of these shows, you see a close up, then how is that happening? (laughs) Well, there are modesty garments, which can be adhesive based underwear. And so it keeps everything in place. And then you can within that you can have inserts of all kinds of materials that you can put inside the adhesive based uh, underwear. And it, um, it can just appear like someone is nude, it can be the skin color, it can be erased in post, it's It just keeps everything in place and away from the other person. There's all kinds of masking ways to give the illusion of people having contact. There's also camera angles. So, I mean, it is a whole world. And I can't pretend to say that we can do it all in this one podcast, but there is definitely a lot of tips and tricks for people to look like everything is nude and they're making contact, but there is no contact in film and television. I think knowing this on its own can be useful, right? Because I feel people growing up with this kind of seeing this like passionate, steamy scenes and they're thinking that's, that's normal. And what's wrong with me if I'm not comfortable with that but it's wonderful that you're saying that there are measurements in place that kind of like to protect people because like in some of these shots are feels i can imagine for a talent be very 
intimate to shoot and maybe they're not comfortable, especially with many people with the history of trauma that can be very triggering. If they are not willing to play a part because of a history of trauma, is that an option that they can, like they're going to be a double to kind of play that? They're going to kind of like hire someone to play that scene. That was also added in the new contract where the double can't do more than what the actor had agreed to do. So before you could have a female identified performer who, you know, was okay with frontal above the waist nudity, but not rear below the waist nudity. And then they, on the day, actually didn't feel comfortable doing anything. And they, the production was like, that's great. We'll just get a um, double. It's not a problem. They can't then get a double that will show both the rear and the front. And so it's, it is all based on what has been agreed to 48 hours before the day. So there are no on the day, like, can we do more than what we agreed? There's not even a question. It's not the union won't allow it. So it's, again, these protections, they were really hard fought. And what's great about them is that they give us a very clear process to these scenes and to how these days unfold. And then there's no time wasted trying to coerce or trying to convince, you know, uh, a performer to do different things, more things than they agreed to, or do it more times. You can be very specific in your nudity writer, which is the contract that you, that you have that says what you will feel comfortable doing. And, you know, you can say, I feel comfortable doing this scene this way for this many takes. Mm -hmm. Um, And that you could do it more takes. That's, that's not against the rules, but it really just needs to be performer led, you know, that, that that conversation happens. So I'm just there to support both what the director wants and what the actor wants. And if I can feel like they are both comfortable and unable to talk to each other about certain things, then I just, you know, find a way to communicate the important, you know, facts and, and have it, you know, create a safer, happier scene, you know, because the idea is not to have an intimacy coordinator on set that cancels all the sex. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone stop all the sexing. The idea is to have all of the intimacy happen in a safe and exciting way, because that translates on screen, you know, people doing great work, feeling really good afterwards and not having 10 years worth of you know, therapy afterwards. So you're pretty much cutting work for us. Oh no. (laughs) Hopefully you have people who are resolving their trauma because of how great all of this experience (laughs) is doing. Because sometimes people have trauma, they get these jobs and I help them navigate the trauma that they have because they really want to get the job done and they really want to do it, but they have, you know, hiccups and emotional barriers. And, you know, um, again, I say like things like this, like maybe we want to look at, you know, numbering the, the takes or having a break in between and then having that conversation relate to the director, not with any of the details of why, but saying, what if we did it a few takes, took a break, did a few takes, took a break. It may seem like you're taking a lot longer and it's costing more money, but you have protected your performer and maximized their comfort and really maximized, you know, your efforts at getting what you need out of the scene. So it really does speak to your vision, you know, and it is working in their best interest. So really it's just finding strategies that work for a multitude of, of hiccups that come up and there always is, 
<laughs> a hiccup. And I've worked with people who have done childbirth scenes, young love, you know, br- brand new, you know, like minors having their first kiss. I've worked with people being tortured, people, you know, so it, the intimacy is all manners of intimacy, you know, it, it just has a wide connotation where your performers are vulnerable in, in a way that could be troublesome then you should have a certified intimacy coordinator that can navigate that space for you. Absolutely. And, you know, we're thinking about all the the kind of possible challenges that come up and also communicating that with the crew, with the director. I think it requires certain sets of skills because you're right that people, talents are there because they, the actress, actresses, they want to do the job. They're excited about this job, hopefully. So it's just a matter of what you can do, as you mentioned, to help people to feel safe enough to do their best work. So tell us, is that something that like the director hiring you or are the talents are hiring you? If, if people are curious to learn more about you, tell us how can they get a hold of you? <laughs> Me. I have an agent. Her name is Amanda Blumenthal. And she also taught the certification program that I took, and it's called Intimacy Professional Association, IPA. And they're on IMDb, and I am on IMDb. So showrunners can call production coordinators. So through my agents, the production will call, a director can request me or performers who know that they're going to have a hard time with certain material. They can ask production for an intimacy coordinator and that request will be provided for. You know, it's not automatic that because you have intimacy, you get an intimacy coordinator. But if there is intimacy, you can ask for an intimacy coordinator and there cannot be any retaliation for doing so. Awesome. So the information will be in the show notes and people are if they're curious to learn more about your services, the support that you're offering. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and giving us all this great information. Thank you so much for having me. And I am happy to come back anytime you need me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks a lot to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. I hope you guys found our conversation useful. It was inspiring to hear Chantal's story of how she turned her suffering to a tool to help other survivors. It's my experience after work of helping survivors for many years is that most often people shy away from getting the support they need. The hope is if I don't talk about it, I don't need to deal with it. But what happens at times that sometimes survivors, what they do, we call trauma vomit, that they talk about their stories with people that they didn't earn the right to hear their stories or they don't have the tools to help them. And in a way from other people's responses, they feel re-traumatized because sometimes people consciously or unconsciously invalidate their stories. So my invitation for people who experience trauma is to reach out to a professional licensed therapist. Your friend, your co-workers, they're not professional therapists. People and organizations like our sponsor, BetterHelp, they are equipped with having the skills that they can help you to get this professional support today. 
I know sometimes it can feel overwhelming to find the therapist and going through the process of intake. If you choose to go with better help, they ask you a few questions and they match you with a therapist that has a specialty and expertise in the area that you need support with. If you are interested to learn more about BetterHelp, you can find the link in the show notes. If you use our code, you will get 10% discount. Anyhow, if you are intrigued by the role of intimacy coordinator and you want to learn more about all of the exciting things they do behind the scene, stay tuned. We have another interview coming up with another coordinator and you don't want to miss it. So make sure you're subscribing to our show so our show gets automatically downloaded to your device. All right, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.